I invite you to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 17 through 25. Last week we saw that the Apostle Paul says essentially the church should be a family. And what that means is not just a family in sentiment, but a family in actually the way that you operate together. And this extended to taking care of widows who couldn't take care of themselves. You literally treat them as mothers. And so we see in verse 1 of chapter 5, we don't rebuke an older men, but we treat them as fathers, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So the church is truly the family of God. And as a family, we care for the least of these and those who cannot care for themselves. And we talked about caring for widows last week. So we ought to be a church who is there and available for those in need all the time. And we are, we are the brethren, and we should be there for one another, not only spiritually in word, but in deed as well. This week, now, Paul is going to shift to elders. And I'd like to start in verse 17 and just read to the end of the chapter. So, the Apostle Paul picks up from the topic of widows to elders and writes to Timothy... Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are cannot, that are not, cannot remain hidden. Now in this passage, Paul's giving Timothy instructions for how the church should honor elders how the church should rebuke elders, and how the church should ordain elders. Now, I, I'm tempted right now to almost go into the fact that the church should have multiple elders, and it should not just be one man and the congregation. That's actually not a biblical model. So, as I've said before, as we discussed First Timothy 3, I personally need to decrease in the congregation, and qualified men in the congregation need to increase so that we move in the trajectory of biblical eldership. Um, but for those maybe who weren't there for that 1 Timothy 3 uh, sermon, just by way of review, 
when the Bible says, when the New Testament speaks of an elder, it's speaking of a pastor. So you'll see the term elder, overseer, shepherd, they all refer to the same office as pastor in the New Testament. So when we say pastor, it means the New Testament elder or overseer. Um, you can see this clearly in many passages, but Acts 20 is one of my favorite because in Acts 20, verse 17, the Apostle Paul is addressing the elders at Ephesus. There's a multiple elders, the single church of Ephesus. He's addressing the elders at Ephesus and refers to them as overseers and tells them to shepherd in verse 28. So there you see all three terms used of the same office. Elder, overseer, and shepherd all refer to that pastoral office. And we saw that in 1 Timothy 3. So that's the direction we need to move as a congregation. And there's much more I could say about how the elders relate to one another, kinds of elders perhaps, but today... Paul is addressing how the church should um, treat and handle elders. And as a church, when we get elders, and right now we have one, but when we do get elders, we should hold them in honor. We should hold them accountable, and we should ordain them patiently. Those are my three movements today. Hold elders in honor, hold elders accountable, and ordain them patiently. Again, the big picture here is we're trying to establish our church, Church of the Vine. And I love the word establish, which means to bring something to a firm and stable basis. So we're planted, but we need to become established by moving in the directions and eventually arriving at the direction that the New Testament points us in for leadership in a church, which not only entails multiple elders, but deacons as well, functioning the way deacons should function. And so that's the direction we're moving. We're seeking to establish our church. Um, so I want you to think about how you can, and members especially, this is almost a members meeting today. The way we're doing the, this, this text is almost like the church is getting together and talking about how to handle others. So we're having a members meeting right now, essentially. And this is a meeting about how we need to construct our biblical understanding of how our church can move in a God-honoring direction with elders. We established there are multiple elders, but now we're going to touch on the honor, accountability, and ordaining of elders. And we're not going to say everything we could say about those things, but just what's in the text today. So first, elders should be honored. Elders should be held in honor. Um, the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, 17, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Expository preaching is a good thing. I know I've said this before too. 
because it forces you to address passages that you would not have addressed otherwise. And I can tell you with confidence and surety that I would never choose to preach on those two verses from the pulpit um, because it could come off wrong. Um, so I'm very sensitive to ministers who are grabbing for money. But looking at the text itself, hoping that you understand that I'm not doing that, Elders should be held in honor. The word honor is timē in Greek, and it means to hold someone in esteem or to place value on someone or to honor someone. So I think elders, the office of elder, and those who are in the office of elder really are God's gifts to the church, to build up the church. And these are the men the church has set aside to do the work of full-time or part-time or even lay ministry. In Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, we are told that Christ gave the church apostles, who are now gone, prophets, who are in the Old Testament, and evangelists, like Timothy, and shepherd teachers, or pastor teachers, and he gave them to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. I love that passage because it shows you what a church is about. A church is an outpost, not just a hospital for the sick. It is that. We'll take everyone who places faith in Jesus Christ, and we will seek to through the means of grace, establish them and build them up. But having done that, it's then strengthening people. It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry in their personal life, in the life of their family, in, their, in the environment God has placed them in for eight hours a day, how they, how they can be sold in light there, in the ministry of the church. So that, that's the point of the church. We're an outpost for the gospel strengthening people for the work of ministry. So, we should honor elders in virtue of their calling to strengthen the church and equip the saints for the work of ministry. But honor in this context clearly doesn't just mean hold them in esteem. It refers also to financially supporting the work of elders. And the Apostle Paul, that, that's very clear in verse well, notice, too, how Paul uses honor in this chapter. That discussion of how you should um, financially support widows, how the church should ought to financially support widows, begins with the phrase, honor widows who are truly widows. So by honor in this chapter, Paul is referring not just to respect and esteem, but to, in virtue of that respect and esteem, to support them monetarily. So, two passages that Paul uses to support this assertion that honors that elders should be financially supported. First, he says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, which is from Deuteronomy 25.4, and refers to the fact that a farmer... When an ox is plowing a or treading out grain in a field to be planted, the ox should be allowed 
to eat some of that grain, to be fed by the work he is doing. So it's very interesting that the Old Testament gives care for an ox like that. So by way of analogy, Paul is saying, a pastor should be an elder who does the work of the ministry, should be sustained by his own labor in that ministry. The second passage is very interesting. He says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves its wages. Now that is not from the Old Testament. That is actually a quote from Jesus himself. It's from Luke 10, verse 7. Now, let me read you the context here. So, I'll read Luke 10, 5 through 7. And this is what Jesus says. This is when he is sending out, or he's sending out 70, or is it 72, um, disciples to go minister. And this is what he says to them. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace shall rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. So that, so it, I find this very interesting that Paul is quoting from something that Jesus said. And Paul refers to it as scripture, as the scripture says. At the very least, this shows you that the teachings of Jesus were, were being circulated in the first century by the time, at least by the time, 1 Timothy was written. But that he calls it scripture. Scholars have pointed out what is obvious it seems that Luke had been written by the time 1 Timothy had been written because he says, as the scripture says. So, it seems that Paul is referring to the known writing of the Gospel of Luke already by the time 1 Timothy is written, which I find incredible. So, that's just a historical point that I find interesting. But the main point Paul is getting at is that good elders, now there are good elders and there are bad elders. And we're going to see what to do with bad elders coming up. But good elders who work hard in shepherding the flock, who are diligent in the tasks that they're called to, diligent in their study, who labor to expound scripture and disciple in doctrine, these men should be adequately supported for their work. In 1 Timothy, in 1 Corinthians 9, 13, and 14, Paul says that those who preach the gospel should make their living by the gospel. He says, in the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So, Paul is has great care for pastors and elders in the church. And in order for a church to be strong, Paul understands that they need to be supported for the work they're doing. Um, so I think it's not only just, it's biblical to support elders and pastors in the work they're doing, but it's not only biblical, I think it's practical. It's practical for the church because 
it is truly a labor. If, if, there, if an elder is doing his job well, if he is diligent in his work, it is truly a labor to work in preaching and teaching. And I, I, uh, that Paul uses the word labor shows you what it should be. You are immersing yourself in the things of God to understand the scripture, to unfold it faithfully for God's people. And there is a spiritual weightiness to that. And so if a pastor has his attention divided between a job and family and preaching and expounding the word, his, his attention will be divided. And the quality of work, his work will not be, and his study and his teaching will not be as rich and he will not be as formed as he could be if he, his attention was every which way. So it helps the church, the quality of the ministry of the church. Number two, it helps the pastor that he doesn't have to worry and have stresses in many different areas, but he can give himself fully to the ministry he's called to, knowing that he's not leaving his family destitute, or he doesn't have to give a half job in his preaching and teaching because he is to... Um, he has to do another kind of work to support his family. So, it's biblical and it's practical to support elders and pastors. Now, I want you to notice a distinction in verse 17. He says, Let the elders who will rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So, notice that Paul is saying that there are Elders who give themselves to certain to different kinds of work. Presbyterians have actually taken this passage, and there's a famous distinction among Presbyterian con congregations called ruling elders and teaching elders. So there's elders who rule, and there's elders who teach. And that's a helpful distinction, um, and this passage may imply it, but I don't think... That's exactly what Paul's getting at. I think all elders are called to rule and lead the church, and all elders should be able to teach and should have the opportunity to teach as well. So in this church, all elders will be ruling elders, and all elders should be able to teach. But I do believe that there should be at least one or more elders who, because of a particular gifting or education, devote themselves specifically, are set aside by the congregation and said, these men, this man or these men, are to be devoted specifically to the task of preaching and teaching. And now, I'm talking about if, this if and when this church grows to the point where we need multiple teaching and preaching elders. And by God's grace, if he wants that to happen, praise God. If he doesn't, praise God. But... We do need to move into a direction of multiple elders who are able to preach and teach and rule and lead the congregation. I can, I can envision, even, even where we are right now, I can envision, and I think it would be good, when, when eldership becomes established in this church where the elders are teaching most, if not all, Bible studies, having ample opportunities to preach as well. Um, and so 
in our church, and I think most Baptistic churches believe that elders should be ruling and preaching and teaching. Even though perhaps you set one man or multiple men aside to devote himself to that and do the majority of preaching and teaching. I would love to say more about how to establish elders and to think about how elders relate to one another, how, that, how elders relate to the lead pastor and associate pastors and staff elders and lay elders. If you are interested in this, there is a good book called A Display of God's Glory by Mark Dever um, that has been very profound in my understanding of ecclesiology. If you are interested, if you're a man and you believe the Lord is calling you to join the, this ministry, the church, as an elder, we're going to have, again, a theological focus group where we read, we pray together, we sharpen one another, and that's going to be starting in January. So I encourage you to think about and consider that. So, elders... We should hold them in honor, hold them esteem, and we should make sure that they're able to focus on the ministry and amply support them for doing so if they're called to be staff elders and set aside to do full-time ministry or part-time ministry. That's good elders. Now, there are good elders, but there are also bad elders, and there are sinful elders. So what do we do in the case of sinful elders? Answer, we should deal with sinful elders not quietly, but decisively. Verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder on the evidence, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, Paul, I, we don't exactly know what the situation is here in Ephesus, but it seems that there are sinful elders and Paul is almost implying that Timothy needs the clean house. But, he says, as you're cleaning house, don't admit a charge against elders except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, which is taken, a principle taken from Deuteronomy 19.15, which says exactly that. Only on the evidence of two or three witnesses shall a charge be established. So, Clean house, Timothy, but make sure every charge is established on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, this is... We're in an interesting situation in, in America today because so many pastors have been exposed for sin while they were in ministry, which I think is an awful thing. And I think whole denominations have been actually hiding these sinful pastors and they're sin pushing their sins under the rug with the veneer of caring for the pastor or not harming the gospel. I tell you right now that hiding sin of a pastor and keeping him in the pulpit while he remains in sin does not help the gospel and it does not glorify God, and it does not help the church. Now, 
Some ministers recently, too, have abused single persons. And if that ever happened in our church, please, God forbid, but if that ever happened in our church, we would pursue a charge against an elder diligently. We would go through due process. So Paul is not saying, hey, if there's somebody that was... A, this is not license for an elder to go and abuse somebody. And since you need to establish a charge on the basis of two or three witnesses, therefore, if someone blows the whistle, their testimony doesn't count. That is not the point here. The point, rather, in the spirit of this command is that an, if an elder is going to be publicly rebuked and removed from office for sin, there should be due process in the matter. Um, and this is exactly what Jesus says in Matthew 18. If a brother offends you, what do you do? You go and tell him his fault. If he won't listen to you, you take two or three witnesses. If they won't listen to the two or three witnesses, you bring it to the church. And then, if they won't listen to the church, let them be as a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, remove them from the congregation. And we did address church discipline in the past, but church discipline is a good and necessary thing, not just for the purity of the congregation, but for the good of the person being disciplined. Because it would be a very hateful thing for a congregation to pretend as if someone's relationship with God is secure and fine when they are living in open and unrepentant sin. So, it is, it, the church discipline is a tool to let a person know, we think something's massively wrong with your relationship with Christ, and we're not going to sit back and allow you to dive headfirst into hell. But we are going to be a corporate witness and tell you, that something is massively wrong if that person is guilty of open and unrepentant sin. And the same goes for the elders as well. Congregations who protect, protect elders who are in sexual sin are not protecting anyone or anything at all. So... Um, there should be two or three witnesses. And I just preached the next point. But if elders are found guilty, and if that elder persists in sin, he should be publicly exposed. Verse 20. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In other words, what they do in the dark should be brought into the light so that the rest may stand in fear. Again, it does not glorify God to cover over the sins of elders. But they should be exposed. It is almost a byword and a joke now that the Catholic Church shuffles priests around to different dioceses when they've been caught in sexual sin. And it is, has been an anathema and a shame upon the Catholic Church for doing so. And the world itself laughs at them for doing that. Has even paid some people hush money so that they wouldn't expose certain ministers. 
May this not be the case in our church. May we hold our elders accountable if they are caught in sin and hoping that they will be restored. I was at a con- me, and, me and Nidia were at a conference one time and we heard the testimony of a man who is now a pastor who went in his early 20s um, was hooked on pornography and he came admitted this to the eldership and there was due process and in love they removed him from the ministry and they publicly ex- publicly let the congregation know that this was happening and he came under the discipline and I can tell you now he has a flourishing ministry and what was brought into the light and made visible has itself become light because now it is a testimony of repentance in his life and he has a flourishing ministry and he has been transformed so it's, it's a beautiful thing to expose sin to put light on it Paul says in First Ephesians 5 or 4 or 5 he says anything that is made visible becomes light I love that passage so any sin that is, that is exposed that sin itself can become light and become a testimony and a ministry in itself to see how a man or woman can be restored and reconstituted from that point that's why you confess your sins to one another and that's part of the reason to expose sin in the congregation if you hide sin under the rug the other elders are not going to stand in fear in fact it's going to facilitate sinful behavior as it has done in the Catholic Church so we should um, we should publicly deal with sin in eldership what what sinful elders do in the dark should be brought into the light how about selecting new elders uh, even the fact that we have to think about removing elders from office and exposing sin should give us great caution in calling elders in the first place so how should we select new elders? Well, we should select new elder, elders by allowing their character to surface. Verse 22, the Apostle Paul says, uh, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So the laying on of hands, we talked about this a few weeks ago, the laying on of hands refers to the ordination ceremony for an elder. Um, when a man was ordained to the ministry, or set apart for ministry in the first century, the elders would lay their hands on him and set them apart. And so you see this in Acts chapter 6. The apostle says, We will devote ourselves to the prayer and the ministry of the word, and what they said pleased the whole congregation, and so they chose proto-deacons. Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon. They chose seven deacons, and these, they set these men before the apostles, and they prayed, and they laid their hands on them. 
So, this refers to the process of ordination. And Paul is saying to Timothy, don't lay hands, don't ordain a man quickly. Be patient in ordaining him. Verse 24, why should you be patient in ordaining somebody? Well, verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous. That is visible, very obvious, and it go, they go before them. You can see it, this man is a sinner. But, but, the sins of other people appear later. So it's easy to, to fake or to put on airs on Sunday for a few months. That's easy. Um, but, over the course of six months, a year or two, a man's character begins to surface in the congregation. You see how he speaks, how he treats his wife, how he raises his children, how he acts among the saints, how he handles the word. So a man's character begins to surface. And the Apostle Paul is saying, don't, don't lay hands on somebody because they have great charisma, they're an excellent speaker. Let their character surface first. Um, I love Dallas Willard's definition of character. He says, our character is that internal overall structure of the self that is revealed by our long-run patterns of behavior from which our actions more or less automatically arise. It is the character that explains why we use credit reports and resumes and letters of references to make decisions about people. They do not just tell us what someone did, but they reveal what kind of thoughts, feelings, and tendencies of will that person habitually acts from, and therefore how he or she will act in the future. So, what we want is men of character on the elder board. Not vibrant personality, men of holy character. We're not, we're not looking for person, good personalities or bad personalities. We're looking for holiness of life, regardless of what their personality is. Now, verse 23 is very interesting. The Apostle Paul says, almost as an interruption to drink alcohol <laughs> to Timothy. So he says... In verse 23, no longer drink water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. It seems that Timothy had taken the Nazarite vow and had promised himself, was under a Nazarite vow, which is, includes not drinking anything that comes from the vine, which includes wine. But Timothy, evidently, we can see in this passage, had frequent ailments. And water was not purified in the first century. So the way water was purified was through alcohol. So alcohol actually had a purifying effect on the stomach. And so Paul is suggesting that Timothy not go too hard on this Nazarite vow, but drink wine for the sake of his frequent ailments. There are different theories on that. I think that's the one that uh, uh, makes best sense of the passage. Either way, uh, Paul's not advocating for drunkenness. He's advocating that Paul drink wine so that it has a purifying effect on his stomach. So, there's the passage. We should honor elders 
who rule well. Treat them with esteem. Honor the office of elder in, in, a, in a culture and in a time where authority is always looked at with suspicion. Our church should give honor to elders because we have seen their character surface. We know that they're men who are holy and devoted to the Lord, not perfect men, but men who strive for the perfection of God through God's power. We have called them, we have assessed them, and therefore we, are, we will honor them as pastors in the church. If el an elder falls into sin, we must deal with it decisively. We don't sweep sin under the rug or hide it from the congregation, but bring it out to the light and make it visible, hoping that that elder is fully restored, but not allowing sin to have its way among the leaders of a congregation that will destroy and kill a church. And we should go about this process of calling elders patiently, waiting for their full character to arise. Men, again, the Theological Focus Group, we're going to study doctrine, and we're going to study spiritual disciplines and holiness. I would, even if you're not, if you don't feel like, ah, I'm not called to eldership, or I don't know if I, I want to be a leader in the church, but I do want to understand doctrine and scripture for myself, my family, my life, and spiritual disciplines, please come out to um, the Theological Focus Group starting in January. And this is going to be a good time of prayer and study. So, that's how we're going to build a healthy church. That's partially how we're going to build a healthy church. Now, this seems so, not technical, but almost like, yes, this has been a members meeting. What's the point of, of going over these things on Sunday morning? Well, it's because we want to bring our church to a firm and stable basis. And I think some the downfall and the sloppiness of so many churches is because these issues are never actually addressed in the pulpit. So we're sharpening our understanding of what the church eldership should look like, how it should be called, what we should be and do in certain situations. And this is very good training for us. But the ultimate purpose is not just so that we have a church that operates like a machine and we have a healthy functioning church and therefore we are the ones you know and all the other churches are the bad ones that's not that's not the idea the idea is so that we move in the direction that Christ has established his church for verse 11 of Ephesians 4 and he gave the apostles the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So, that's the point. If you want a skyscraper, you don't start from the top. You start building from the bottom. And that's what we're doing. In order to establish a healthy church, and in order for our church to move in the direction of and 
by God's grace, attain to the measure of the fullness of the stature of Christ, we must do it God's way. Amen? And this is the way God has ordained His church to operate. And I believe if we do so, we'll be a healthy and strong church. Let's close in a word of prayer.